Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 12 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself use the music of Fish to introduce the listener to other non-jam bands that we think that you might enjoy. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans now more than ever. But the problem with fish fans is that all they listen to is fish. And this leads to a very myopic, unexamined life. We need to get you out of your shell and listen to other things. Absolutely. So here, uh, our first episode since the Baker's Dozen concluded, we are going to focus on yet another 3.0 standout stellar jam, the 822-2015 Prince Caspian. And note, mm. this is not Prince Caspian, Tweezer, Prince Caspian. This is Prince Caspian. All right, so if you guys have uh, listened to Beyond the Pond before, or if this is your first time coming back, just a quick overview of what we do here. So we take a gem, in this case, the Prince Caspian from Magnaball. Talk a bit about it. Talk a bit about the history of the gym, uh, the show that it was at, kind of the significance of all that. Really do a deep dive. And then we take on a couple of different bands, a couple of different songs that we think either musically or thematically uh, have something to do with that jam or a bit of an inspiration for us based off the jam and try to spin it off and introduce you guys to some new music. So really excited about this episode. Cool to get back to a bit more historical fish and really great for us to celebrate the two-year anniversary of one of the best jams of 3.0 and um, I would say one of the standout jams of fish's career overall. Some of the themes that we are going to uh, touch on in this exploration of the Magnaball Prince Caspian include the moment an underwhelming band says, pay attention to me, fish as victorious sport, and Prince Caspian's second life as a jam vehicle. And on that note, let's get to it. So while the meat of this will consist of a discussion of the Magnaball Prince Caspian, we would be remiss not to do a bit of a final Baker's Dozen recap. Um, the last episode of this show we were recording was actually being recorded on the evening of August 1st. And then for Maple Night, we had the Holes Night on August 2nd. August 4th was Lemon. The fifth was Boston Cream, and then the final night was the plain old glaze. Now, let's see. 
Um, August 1st, the Maple Evening. I guess some of the highlights from that show would be the Golden Age Jam. Certainly the Steep, right? The 12-minute Steep would be my favorite part of that show. Yeah, I would say that as well for me. So there was a very, what was it, 46 days into drums. That was one of the few times Trey actually broke out the Marimba Lumina, I think, in that show. Really nice Piper with uh, 46 days themes as well. And um, got to give a shout out to Possum, the uh, only one of two Possums this summer, the only Possum at Baker's Dozen. Really, really great build to uh, one of the final peaks. Very unique version. Yeah, for my money, 8-1 was probably my least favorite show of the Baker's Dozen and still would have been like a top five show of summer 2016. It's just how high the quality was. You know, it wasn't without its good jams, but certainly it was a little disjointed, a little more of the, I guess, Tuesday night malaise. But yeah, still some great jams. I mean, who, t- who saw Steep coming? <laughs> that's kind of, that, that sums I. up the Baker's Dozen. Um, the following night, Holes, you had a really good uh, meet. I thought this first set, uh, it listens really well. Uh, I did not hear this set live. I was uh, traveling at the time and wasn't super into the set list rolling in. And then I went back and re-listened to it. And I was like, oh, I am an idiot. This is why uh, reading shows on paper don't make any sense. Yeah, I was having a... <laughs> Fantastic dinner at this place in um, Woods Hole, Cape Cod called Water Street Kitchen, which I would recommend to anybody who likes really good food on the Upper Cape. Then I started getting these Twitter notifications that they'd open the show with Tom Waits' Way Down in the Hole, which people also know is the main theme from The Wire. And then suddenly my uh, Twitter feed was loaded up with all um, all these Clay Davis from The Wire Memes all saying she, <laughs> which won't make any sense if you haven't seen The Wire, but you really should watch it because it's really, really good. Uh, <laughs> the second set of that show is incredible, by the way. Second set, I mean, yeah, I mean, just Man. 22 minute Mike song. I mean, uh, I, I still remember when they busted out uh, the 14 minute Mike song on um, 8 4 2015. Thank you, Drew Fish eternally for that I was lucky to catch a 12 minute mic song uh, about a week later at Alpine Valley but since then there have been some really quality mics but there haven't been any mics that have uh, uh, come anywhere close to jamming on the level of those two in 3.0 until 8.2 22 minute version multifaceted that segues into uh, acapella with a bit of uh, ambient noise backing, Oh Holy Night. Uh, saw someone tweeted at some point um, towards the end of the Baker's Dozen that this was the most 93-94 fish that you uh, could have heard in 2017. And it's got that very creepy uh, um, but like familiar feel to it that, that you got in a lot of 93-94 fish that I just love. I ate it up. Um, and to follow it up with a type 2 taste, I mean, come on. Type 2 taste, kind of type one and a half wingsuit. Yeah, 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 really good wingsuit. I mean, I thought that was a really good, really solid set. I think uh, you take that set out of the context of the Baker's Dozen, and it's one of the best sets of a summer tour. Then, what, August 4th was Lemon Night. They opened up with the Blind Lemon Jefferson song, Ha Ha Ha. Mm-hmm. And then um, the sense and subtle sounds into 
this Prince Caspian, which was a very good Caspian. But all anyone wanted to talk about on 8-4 was that they covered a Radiohead song, Everything in its Right Place. Yeah, something that was uh, something of a dream, I would say, for any Fish fans that are Radiohead fans. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know for myself, uh, when they were breaking down uh, the albums uh, for Festival 8, my secret hope was that they would do Kid A. I didn't know how they would do it, but I just wanted to hear them attempt it. Um, my first thought after this performance is I'm glad they didn't do the record. Um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, I freaked out when I saw them across Twitter. Uh, I loved hearing it. I think that um, they should have Trey should have held off looping Fishman's vocals until he got a grip on the the song. Right. Um, extend the intro a little bit more. All that said, I hope that they do it again. I think it fits their sound really well, and I think that it could be a really nice jam vehicle for them. Yeah, I was uh, sitting on a couch in a Cape Cod basement of a house my family was renting, listening to the Wook stream on Mixler, and then when I heard the keyboard intro, I said, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. Um... For someone who is a big Radiohead fan, my seven has seen them live several times. What's interesting to me is that they actually, I give them credit for really attempting to play the song like Radiohead plays it live, which is to say that John Fishman did the same type of drum intro that Radiohead's drummer Phil Selway does, and Trey was using the Chord Chaos pad to remix the vocals on the fly, just like the guitarist Johnny Greenwood does on stage. He was certainly, um, it was a bit of a train wreck, and if you weren't already familiar with the song, I could see how it would be a little WTF. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Radiohead to me is probably one of the most important bands of the past 30 years, and I think we'll probably have to do a deep dive in them in this show at some point in the not too distant future. So I'm happy that Fish went ahead and had the balls to do that. And uh, like Trey, said in Rolling Stone, we love Radiohead. Who doesn't? We're, we're really happy about the, the tip of the cap from Fish and really um, intrigued by the attempt. So uh, you and I have definitely been talking about it. I think doing a deep dive into Radiohead will be good for both us from a cathartic standpoint as well as uh, for Fish fans because Radiohead is uh, um, in a different way as adventurous at times as Fish and um, as we'll talk about here later in this episode um they've had you know a unique a uniquely similar career arc in terms of um uh you know embracing a really exciting latter period that not many people saw uh during their initial peak and not many people saw during their dip Plus, they change their set almost every night. They do a really deep dive into their discography. They care about the live show very much. Very, very big production. Um, So anyway, let's get to 8-5, which was Boston Cream Night, despite the fact that this donut looked nothing like a Boston Cream Donut. Yeah, this was... uh... Put that slide. I think it was. This was one of those shows. I'm really. I, I. Everyone was kind of expecting this show to come along at some point and wondering where it was going to fall in the run. Um, I think it was wise of them to wait until kind of the end um, because 
the internet was ablaze with ideas the day of. There was a ton of energy, and there was a ton of energy in that first set. The God of Jabu, the Sunshine of Your Feeling uh, mashup of Boston and Cream. Yeah, during that Boston Cream mashup, I was getting a text from a friend who said it was the best piece of music that he's ever seen live, ever. That's an exaggeration, but I get it. We've all been there. We've all been yeah. there. <laughs> um, and then the set, second set started with um, an absolutely phenomenal ghost. Uh, 20 plus minutes of just absolute peaking fish bliss, not unlike the Prince Caspian that we're going to be talking about here in this episode. And then Petrichor. And then Petrichor. And then a light that just didn't... Healed momentum. And then... Uh, I was I was lost for it. This was, I think, in hindsight, my least favorite show of the Baker's Dozen. Um, although there are some of my favorite moments from the Baker's Dozen. Yes, it was after the Ghost, Petrichor. I enjoy it. I don't think it was placed very well in that second set. Then the light did not go out as far as more recent ones in 3-0 that we come to expect. And then, you know. You know, we'll get into this here in a second, but we can kind of talk about it right now. Just at this point, the focus seemed to be a little bit too much on what songs they're going to play, what songs they have left. Yes. And um, it felt as though, uh, and this is coming from someone who I wanted no repeats. I loved the fact that uh, from a statement standpoint, the band did no repeats. Um, it felt like they didn't have as much left as um, they would have had they paced out their set lists. Um, a little bit differently maybe that first weekend there were a lot of heavy hitters especially night one two and three which feels like it might have been a curveball to fans but it also kind of impacted the overall set list of these last five shows well kind of they also um they got away from having uncommonly long jams in the first set for i mean even even when you don't talk about jam filled night they were still I think it was night two had something of like a 17 minute version of MoMA dance. Uh, the first and night had a Bernie and like right yeah. night one had um, somewhat of like a type two version of Timber. Right, you know, so right. sort of by pacing it out and extending these songs, it made for some really dynamite first sets. Whereas as they went on with no repeats, the first sets got a touch too cutesy and random for their own good. Yeah. Sort of like stacking a bunch of B-sides on top of one another. I know the last night, I mean, I guess set one on the last night, um, certainly once you got to the Vita Blue song, and of course I'm not going to bitch about a set that contains Isabella, but what, they opened with Dog Stole Things? Yeah. Um, there was a Sanity in there, which you could see coming from a mile away. There was a Saw It Again. Two songs I love. Um, you know, I think... Um, uh, you know, just, like, just like the songs aren't part of the rotation, and there's kind of like a reason for that. Right, right, right. Like you want to hear them on a rarity show. You don't want to hear them like those types of songs, like five shows in a row. Right. Um, that said, I have very few uh, nits to pick with the Baker's Dozen overall, and I thought the eight six finale was a very strong close for the overall run. Extremely. Um, I thought the inclusion of the Vita Blue track, Most Events Aren't Planned, a song I had been long wanting Fish to play and had long ago given up hope that they would play, um, 
had me really stoked. Um, the Isabella to close out the first set, um, it felt like that was the that was definitely coming along with Harpua on uh, 7.30. And when it didn't come, I said, well, they're just never going to play it again. <laughs> and, of course, they threw us a curveball through sprinkles on the glazed donut, which uh, are, you know, obviously Jimmy's in the Northeast. Um, and we're able to throw that in for, for fans. So um, by the end of that first set, I was super stoked. Um, that was the first time I've taken in a webcast in a bar, which I would <laughs> highly recommend to anyone who can't make a show find a bar that's showing the webcast it is as close to being at a fish show as you possibly could get without being there and here's the great thing you get better beer you get most likely better food you do not get a daily burger that which is the saddest thing but you get really good food and you get no uh bathroom lines so i was at that show it was um a very excellent classic way to end things. Everybody knew the big second set simple was coming. Mm-hmm. That did that did not disappoint. It was certainly one of the better yams in years. The great guitar solo and big Isabella jam. Even uh, at the encore when they did what it was like Willie Nelson's on the road again. On the road again, everyone's tearing up. Everyone's tearing up. There was like the long boy quotes. There's a week of pod quote, and then of course the huge tweezer reprise. Yeah, I mean, Paige saying, I've been hearing a lot for the last couple of days, or the last couple of weeks, I've been asked, uh, is this still Lawn Boy? Right. Yes, it is. You know, the fact that the band is playing along with these little inside jokes that develop within the fan base, it, it really just made it feel like um, uh, MSG was our summer tree fort uh, that we all mm. hang out in, this long extended slumber party. Um, I like that metaphor. That's, that's really good. Yeah. It was, I mean, I'll just say, I think Baker's Dozen, I mean, it was, for me at least, the most fun I've had being a Fish fan since the late 90s. Just the donuts, the themes, the effort, the no repeats, the fact that it was in my backyard, that the entire fan base online and off was completely energized and engaged for those 13 days. It was exceeded my expectations. And the fact that they're still playing at this level in their careers is extremely impressive. Yeah, I mean, I would say I became a Fish fan in 2001, and this is the best Fish experience I've experienced, I've had uh, in real time since I became a Fish fan. Um, and I've had a lot of really great moments where I was like, this band, you know, this is why I stay a Fish fan. This is why I keep coming back for more. Um, I've never experienced anything in real time like the Baker's Dozen. With everything now in hindsight, what would you say your favorite show, favorite set, your favorite jam of the run was? Favorite show was Night 4, Jamfield Night. Mm-hmm. Favorite set was probably uh, Night 5, second set. That was the huge Karini Mr. Completely 1999 jam, Steam Madness. It's a pretty flawless set. Oh, yeah. All things Especially concerned. coming after night four. I mean, to yeah. do that second set after night four Unreal. was, uh, you got to be fucking kidding me. Right, right. Um, favorite jam might actually be the night five tube. I love that jam. That's They accomplished so much ground in a short amount of time. That's been my go-to for strutting down the street. I would have to agree with you. Night four, I think that's the best show. I think that's... Along with Fuck Your Face, the uh, one of the strongest, if not the strongest show of 3.0. Uh, most it's, interesting. It's like one and two. You can like flip a coin. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I'm going to go, and this is definitely uh, attendance bias, but I'm going to go with second set of night eight. Uh, 40 minutes of really dark and ominous jamming combined with my first ever Harpua. Uh, really funky dance heavy 2001 that just had the place going crazy. It's and, a top three uh, show. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, one of the. I think it's top three of the uh, the overall run. Um, and I would say my favorite jam is uh, the Chalk Dust Torture from uh, from mm-hmm. Night Six. Um, I just I kind of described this in the last episode, but the the fact that everyone knew it's the only Chalk Dust Torture. It's second set coming out of Half Mercy. It just everything just kind of stars aligned for that jam. I, I recently re-listened to it, and it just and has it, so many great sections to it. And, and it ends like Harry Hood. Yeah, yeah. Like, right? the place was just going absolutely insane, and I was right behind the stage, and so I could see the first, you know, uh, 20 rows of the floor. Every time Kuroda would light them up, everyone was just in, you know, they, they looked like that the Harry Hood kid from... Uh, um, the internet meme uh, back, right. back in December it was like 20 rows of that <laughs> so on that note let's wrap the Baker's Dozen discussion there's a whole lot to unpack I'll be listening to it for several weeks to come something tells me we'll be back to it there's got to be a jam that we're going to pick out here soon oh yeah Transitioning into the jam of the show. So why are we talking about the Prince Caspian from Magnaball? Well, this was the uh, euphoric centerpiece jam of uh, Magnaball. I think you could say, and I think you would agree with me, this was the jam of Magnaball. Yeah, certainly. It was was the bathtub jam until it wasn't. Right, right, yeah. Um, It's capped off the critical set two of a three-set show. Um, it was an incredibly surprising jam, and it was really another lesson in not counting out fish, something that we're going to talk about thematically here in a second. Um, for me, I saw this live. I was in the field. This was very similar to the light from Dix in 2012, as well as the chalk dust torture I was talking about a second ago from Baker's Dozen. It felt like fish had just won game six of the World Series in the bottom of the ninth. This just this this felt like that moment where a fan base collectively loses their shit over something that was completely unexpected and uh, right out of left field. Yeah, um, I was not um, at Magnaball. I actually watched this show in this set at a webcast party at uh, at a friend's apartment in Brooklyn. And after they ended the tweezer and started a Prince Caspian, you know, people kind of got off the cast, went to go refill their beers, get like some more guacamole, get some more sausages. And then at one point someone said, hey, shut up, watch. <laughs> and we turned to like, oh, oh. I was like, oh, okay. So that was, um, nobody expected it to go in that direction. So everyone had to shut the hell up and, put the beer down and pay attention to what was going on. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Caspian, um, I mean, at one point it was known as fucker pants. Um, it gets a lot of hate in the in the fish community. And it's interesting, you know, there there were there was precedent for this. This, this wasn't a jam that came out of Lawn Boy by any means. Uh, no. Sample Najar. Uh, you go back 61997, 121297, 4598, the Island Tour, 123098, 731.99, and uh, 91-2012, right before the the light uh, that that's so famous from Dix. Uh, all these are high quality and in some cases in most cases type 2 versions of Prince Caspian right. um, so it's not unprecedented that they would jam this but uh, I definitely uh, felt that the, the, the set uh, was Wolfman's into Haley's into a really beautiful blissful 46 days that touched on uh, two versions of me jam which I really enjoyed but then you went into number line that felt ill placed Tweezer that was really, really good and really beautiful and uh, felt like it was going into a different direction before Trey forced the way into Prince Caspian. And at that moment, I texted my brother and said, well, Tweezer was amazing. And uh, put my phone away and just kind of figured we were going to get like a Golgi or something to end off the set. And they broke Caspian down and it ended up going into this just amazing blissed out rock and roll peak jam that um i'll just never forget huge c major peaks huge c major peaks um and this jam big c major peaks mic dropping bombs huge bombs uh watching the replay of it is uh is great uh the way the camera pans over the top of uh the field you can just see everyone losing their collective shit the sunset at the moment was great. I mean, this was one of my all-around favorite fish shows I've ever seen in hindsight and, and in the moment, I guess, as well. Um, but this version really reset the way people think about Caspian. Um, you look at uh, the Mexico version from uh, January 16th, 2016, as well as from January 13th, 2017, and then the recent versions at Dayton and at the Baker's Dozen, 719 and 84, 2017. These are all incredible type two versions that uh, have really, in a lot of ways, reset how we think about the song. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a mashup of uh, the peak scene in Interstellar with the Magnaball Caspian that's just pure internet gold. I would definitely recommend watching it. Uh, it's hmm. the moment where Matthew McConaughey is crying into uh, videos of uh, what's happened on Earth since he's been out in space and they just infused it with the peak of Prince Caspian. and Just complete internet gold. <laughs> that sounds better than the movie Interstellar itself, which I did not see. That, that, sounds, that sounds great. So this show... Um, and I would say, depending on how you view the night before, which I actually personally like more, um, I would say, taking off my bias, this is a top three or top five show of 3.0, 8.22. Oh, yeah, top five easily. Easily. First set's very 3.0, set one uh, It's very inessential on relisten, but it really fit the mood of the afternoon after a really incredible opening night. It's not nearly as engaging as its counterpart on 7-2-2011, but really it served its purpose in allowing everyone ample time to get settled in, listen to some fish, dance around a little bit in the sunshine, drink some 
eight, 9% double IPAs and uh, get ready for, for what was to come, which were really three sets of, of high quality fish from the second set, really great third set with uh, excellent versions of Blazon, Cities and Light, and then a driving jam that I would argue is the most listenable late night set of the band's career. Um, probably would say the ambient set from 98 comes in second, but this just had some really beautiful sections that uh, tied really closely in with what you expect from Fish 3.0 jamming at its best. And certainly, until Baker's Dozen, I think Magnaball capped off the best fish tour since uh, 2003. Yeah, that 2015 tour was a ton of fun to, uh, to be a part of. I know Rumor Mill for 2018 actually has like Watkins Glen heard on the schedule. Whether or not that'll transpire remains to be seen, but I think it's a pretty high likelihood. Have you been up there? I have not, no. It's really just an idyllic fish uh, festival setting. We actually, my, my wife was 32 weeks pregnant with our son at the time, and we went and we stayed in a hotel. Utero fish. Utero fish, yeah. Uh, Wallace did Merriweather and Magnaball before he was born, um, which is way cooler. I, I only saw Bruce Springsteen dance with Courtney Cox in utero. Um, <laughs> but uh, stayed in a hotel, got to take a shower, got to be clean, sleep in a bed every night, and then drive into this very well-manicured uh, festival grounds with all the amenities you needed, Hill Farmstead beer, uh, wood fire, uh, uh, oven pizza, uh, high, really great quality food, just a, an amazing venue for fish. And now that we have absolutely built up impossible expectations for the Magnaball Prince Caspian, we're going to play some of it for you. Let's do it.
All right, I hope that you enjoyed that extremely uplifting and euphoric version of Prince Caspian from Magnaball. So, as Dave mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, one of the things we want to focus on is that moment when an underwhelming band says, pay attention to me. The reason why we thought about this was Prince Caspian, as we've talked about, is typically uh, regarded as an underwhelming and uh, thorn in many a fan's side fish song. But after this ca- after this Magnaball version, it suddenly became a song you had to focus on, you had to pay attention to. And you go back and you listen to past versions, and uh, there's suddenly a lot to really appreciate and enjoy about Prince Caspian for a lot of us. I know I'm one of those people. Um, and so when we were thinking about this, we were thinking about bands that we both have gone through that experience with. And the first band we're going to talk about is one that I'm ashamed to have on this list, but at the same time... Um, I don't think I would love them as much as I do now and need them in my life uh, as a band without the fact that I just didn't care about them at all before they finally made sense to me. And that is The National, a band that I've been seeking so many ways to uh, insert into this show. Um, and we're going to talk about the song Little Faith off of High Violet in 2010. So um, this was the, the National's fifth album, High Violet. And uh, I would say it's their most controversial. Uh, definitely was their most difficult to make. Um, and I think, in hindsight, uh, you really have a lot of band or a lot of fans who are on either side of the spectrum. Either you love it or you hate it. W- where do you fall, Dave? I know that you're a huge National fan as well. Hi, that's a great record. There's no two ways about it. The songwriting is fantastic. The National, they don't have any bad albums. You know, it's. A great album. I still listen to it quite regularly. I just wish it sounded more live. So it's interesting. So this was the record that convinced me that The National was a great band and instantly made them one of my favorite bands probably ever. Um, To this point, before I heard High Violet, I found them extremely boring. I found them to be the worst example of indie blasé normalcy. And I asked myself... Why does this band need to exist when we have artists like Cash McCombs and Kurt Vile who are singing already about upper-middle-class white young dad issues? I just didn't see the point of it. I hated Matt Berenger's voice. But um, a friend of mine told me to listen to the song Little Faith and kind of described the method of uh, the, the, the opening guitar lines distortion, how this was crafted, and told me to really pay attention to lyrics. And... I did, and I kept an open mind, and I just was blown away, and I was completely hooked. Um, And really, this opened up a portal for me into their back catalog. Suddenly, Alligator, Boxer made complete sense. The nuances of the band emerged. Um, The sounds that the uh, Dessinger brothers are constantly tweaking with uh, on on all their songs that you just hear in layers and upon layers um, suddenly came out, became very colorful to me. Brian Devendorf's drums really rose to the floor. Um, And for the next six weeks, I really couldn't stop listening to the record. It was my favorite album of 2010. And to this point, it's my second favorite record of the decade. Um, I don't know any album that can come close to surpassing it at this point for my number two slot. Um, but this was the record that made me a fan 
and made me completely pay attention to everything that the National does. Um, and it's got me so excited for what they're about to do on this new record, which um, feels in many ways like kind of High Violet Part 2, at least with what we've heard from the first couple of singles. Um, albeit it sounds like the band is in a bit of a healthier place than they were with High Violet. With Sleep Well Beast, yeah, that comes out on, uh, on September 8th. Extremely excited for that. The three songs that they have put out are each are great and that they sound exactly like the national, but they keep putting new spins on the formula. You'd think that they would have run their middle-aged brooding dad rock into the ground by now, but based on the songs I've heard, they still are as vibrant as ever. Absolutely. Uh, Someone tells me we'll be talking about that here in a couple of weeks. So, Oh, yeah. No escaping the National on this podcast. No, no, they're one of like the five bands you can't escape other than Fish. All right, so with that, let's listen to uh, Little Faith um, uh, off of High Violet by The National. Don't be bitter, Anna. I know how you think. You're waiting for Radio City to sink. You'll find commiseration in everyone's eyes. The storm will suck the pretty girls into the sky. You just heard Little Faith with the National off of the High Violet album, one of my favorite bands. And I said, fantastic album. Don't get me wrong. A little produced. That's okay. So the band I am going to talk about for this segment is a British rock band called The Horrors. And the song I'm going to showcase is called Scarlet Fields off of their 2009 album Primary Colors. So the Horrors, um, they first came around in 2007 with their debut album called Strange House. At that time, they were basically a goofy, like, garage goth rock band. They kind of had a thing going on where it was like almost like horrorcore. They didn't take themselves too seriously. It was garage rock with Barfisa organs and songs about vampires and Jack the Ripper. And the single was called Sheena is a Parasite. It was just as one of those bands, one of those albums that you said, this doesn't have much reason to exist. Like, where are they going? This really, this is not a way to get like career longevity based upon this record. This is kind of 
there's like a few novelty songs and then it's the kind of thing you put away and don't have to listen to really ever again. So I had zero expectations going forward with this band. Really, there wasn't anything for me to expect. So in 2009, they put out an album called Primary Colors, which I didn't really learn about until 2010. And I kind of... I don't know quite how I heard about it, but just through the grapevine, I kept hearing through certain channels that, all right, they're taking themselves more seriously. They brought Jeff Barrow from Portishead. He's behind the Portishead sound uh, on board to produce. They also work with this um, this video film director named Chris Cunningham, had a hand in putting the album together. And supposedly with this record... They wanted to reinvent themselves. And they realized that the first record wasn't built for a career. So they somehow opted for career longevity by becoming like a post-punk, shoegaze, krautrock, Brit goth band. Really, they wanted to hit every one of my sweet spots. Like literally on this record, it's like when I was sleeping, they drilled a hole into my brain and sucked out the gray matter and analyzed it and said, okay. What kind of album would David Goldstein really enjoy listening to? And the first song and video was called Sea Wind in the Sea, and it was an eight-minute Krautrock song. It was sort of their coming out party and saying, okay, you got to take it seriously now. We're doing Krautrock. We're giving you these post-punk bass lines. There's going to be walls of shoegaze sound. We're going to utilize the uh, Phil Spector be my baby drum beat you know i mean certainly bringing on jeff barrow is one of the sure signs that like baby's all grown up and wants to make an artistic statement you know like if you get someone like flood or brian eno to come out and like produce your record so since then i mean the horrors they've kind of established themselves as what you would like to call record collector rock there's lots of lots of spot the influence um the big single off of their third album was kind of sounds like it could have come from like a uh like a john hughes soundtrack some of their more recent stuff is a very early 90s uh, like Manchester baggy thing to it and actually they're putting out their fifth album, I think entitled Five, like the Roman numeral, which I think comes out next week. And everything that they put out since Primary Colors has been very good. And really, it was almost like they just had to kick themselves in the butt and say, let's get serious because this is the kind of thing that we really want to do for the rest of our lives. And the song I'm going to showcase is called Scarlet Fields, which to me it sounds like... If Interpol wised up and got a clue and a lot more pedals and keyboards in between their second and third album, because it has a lot in common with uh, like a Joy Division or Interpol song with a very post-punk bass line, but they also add waves of shoegaze sound. Uh, the singer in Ferris Badwan is kind of, uh, you know, he's like a bit of like a wounded British lover man, but instead of talking about it, I'll just play it for you, and if you have any interest in any of the shoegaze stuff we talked about, I think, in the second episode, or post-punk bands, or, or Joy Division, or anything like that, I would recommend that you check out Primary Colors to start with your horror's obsession. So let's listen to Scarlet Fields.
taking a break here between sections. We're going to talk a bit about new albums we've been listening to lately. Uh, album I want to feature is by um, a Portland ambient duo called Golden Retriever. This record is called Rotations. Uh, this record actually helped me to take a nap in the uh, hours before I went to the Double Chocolate Baker's Dozen show. A much-needed nap because my son didn't sleep very well the night that we were driving up to New York. But um, this is a very, very warm, peaceful, happy, ambient record. It's the third proper LP from Golden Retriever. Here their sound is fleshed out a bit thanks to 10 classical musicians joining them which was all due to a grant issued from the Portland Arts and Culture Council. So Golden Retriever is Jonathan uh, Selaf on bass clarinet and Matt Carlson on modular synth. They have a very binary, very um, uh, um, uh, original approach to ambient music. Um, uh, they are kind of a mix of early 70s style Harold Budd style ambient with John Hopkins Immunity Era Sunstroked Bliss. Uh, if you haven't heard the record Immunity by John Hopkins, 2013 record of his, um, I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, but this album, Rotations by Golden Retriever, it's almost very nature documentary-like, uh, kind of feels in some cases like that Boards of Canada record um, I spoke about in the last episode. Uh, you can literally feel the flowers blooming in a time lapse or animals emerging from hibernation when you listen to these songs. Um, six tracks on the record, five of the six are in this very blissful, warm, being born type of style. The one outlier is uh, 36 Stratagems, which is um, a bit darker, a bit more ominous, has a bit more cacophonous sound to it. But um, on the whole, this is a really accessible ambient record. I would say anyone who's interested in the ambient style, who likes um, kind of what they heard during the 19, 20-minute mark of the um, uh, 725 uh, cross out and painless or during set two of 723 or the latter part of the a song I heard the ocean sing jam uh, would really enjoy this sort of stuff um, the addition of the classical musicians combined with uh, they actually performed this record live throughout October 2015 to really get it right to get it tight makes this really really listenable so Golden Retriever Rotations. I would highly recommend that you add this to your own uh, album rotation uh, here as we move out of the dog days of summer and into early fall. It's just a very welcoming, uh, beautiful sounding album. What do you got, Dave? I have an album from a dude named Ron Gallo. The album is called Heavy Meta. This album actually came out in February, but I only recently discovered it uh, because I was listening to the Sound Opinions podcast, which is the excellent podcast based out of Chicago with um, the Chicago-based music music critics Greg Cott and Jim DeRogatis. Those guys are very good for discovering uh, new things that you may have missed. So this guy, Ron Gallo, he's 29 years old, and he seems to be having a midlife crisis at age 29. <laughs> uh, I would describe this record as tw kind of twangy punk rock, twangy grunge, 
Gallo, he's definitely he's a yelper. He kind of stylizes his vocals after a um, little bit of Richard Hell from Richard Hell and the Voidoids, a little uh, bit of Gun Club, early 80s kind of uh, like cowpunk band. He uh, To record this record, he was in, um, in Philadelphia. I guess he was he fronted a kind of roots rock band called Toy Soldiers, which I not very familiar with and then he broke up that band and decided to move to nashville and he put together this rock and roll trio and this album it's just a kick-ass rock record he's got a great voice he writes great great lyrics he knows how to yell for added effect he can um he beats the shit out of a red fender jaguar it's uh really sarcastic lyrics kind of angry i know he deals with um I guess a lot of the album touches on a girlfriend who had um, some some issues with drugs and alcohol. There's a song called Why Do You Have Kids, which is him literally just commenting on people he sees in the street that really should not have kids. And being a young father, I appreciate it because I can't believe some of the shit that goes on here in, in New York City. And it's just uh, compact and exciting, and it's one of the best pure rock and roll albums I've heard in a long time, and would recommend them highly. I'm uh, I'm hooked. It's easily going to be in my top ten of 2017, and I'm happy I listened to that podcast. Thank Greg Cott. He got good taste, man. All right. So our second and final segment of. Uh Today's episode of Beyond the Pond is going to focus on fish as victorious sport, or if you will, fish as veteran pitchers coming out in Game 5 of the NL or ALCS and pitching an absolute gem. So the reason why we were thinking this is, and we were talking about this a little bit with regards to the uh, second set on uh, of Magnaball uh, 822. It was kind of this little up and down set where you you knew Fish was capable of so much, and so why are they throwing out a backwards on the number line that's not going to go anywhere? And why are they throwing out a Prince Caspian right after an amazing tweezer? And then they play this incredible jam, and you kind of just have to stop and be like, oh, "Fuck, they did it! I knew that they could do it," and you just appreciate them on a level that you almost don't appreciate when they're at their like an athlete is at their athletic apex. This is the uh, over-the-hill, crusty old athlete um, coming back and absolutely having a moment of glory when you thought that they were done. Um, so we wanted to talk about two bands that both exemplify this. Um, first band we're going to talk about is a band that's near and dear to both of our hearts, uh, Radiohead. And we're going to talk specifically about uh, the song Daydreaming off of their most recent record, A Moonshake Pool. And for me, the way I tie this in, so I will never, ever forget the moment I heard, the first time I heard OK Computer. It uh, completely tore up in my mind about what was possible in music, especially rock music. Um, it happened again with Kid A a couple of years later with an album that uh, restructured and reshook how I viewed and listened to Radiohead. Um, Amnesiac, I loved hearing them take their sound in as far away uh, as, po- as they possibly could while still retaining what made them so significant. 
And uh, while Hail to the Thief wasn't initially my favorite record of theirs, it's grown on me to be one of my favorites um, of the last 20 years. And then a couple years later, when In Rainbows came out, it solidified for me that this was um, a band that was up there with all the greats that could make very diverse music that could return to their core and reinvent themselves in ways. And uh, I, I just was completely sold as a Radiohead fan. And then they put out The King of Limbs. And I hated the games. Mm. I found it one note. I found it obnoxious. I thought it lacked overall flow. It felt like an EP. And for the first time, for me, it felt like a step back for the band. And I listened to it a handful of times. But I really basically lost interest in Radiohead for about three or four years afterwards. Just I just couldn't handle where they were. I couldn't handle Tom York and his little dopey hat dancing around in a alleyway or wherever he was during uh, um, that was the video for Lotus Flower right yeah during Lotus Flower I, I, I just I, I didn't like it I didn't like where they were taking their sound and I just lost interest and then a moon shaped pool was announced and I knew I was going to listen to it basically just out of duty you have to listen to every radio head the album that comes out even if you don't want to and they released <laughs> even if you don't want to God. <laughs> they released right. they released Burn the Witch and I was okay. I like the strings, but it the lyrics of it and parts of it just felt like what I didn't necessarily like about To King Limb or uh, the King of Limbs. And then they put out Daydreaming. And that song pulled me back in and made me complete Radiohead diehard again and actually made me listen to The King Limbs in a completely different way and really appreciate the last three tracks on the record and and hear them as kind of a transition point to where they are with with the Moonshaped Pool. Um, The ambient textures, the really sad, somewhat vague lyrics, uh, the length of the song, Paul Thomas Anderson music video. I mean, I was... I felt like I was rediscovering everything that makes Radiohead such a force in modern music. And then when the album came out in full, it was one of my favorite records of last year. It was my number three album of the year. It switched places with Kevin Morby for my top spot for the majority of the year. Um, really, at the end of the day, it's a record I always hoped and believed Radiohead could make again. And one that I really think resets their career trajectory going forward. Uh, I think that it's a completely new sound, a completely new style, a completely new approach that many of us didn't expect from Radiohead, even a band as diverse as they are. And it really opens the door to what they could possibly do on whenever their next record comes out or whatever their next tour is. Um, And yeah, I really hope that any band that I've loved makes a record like this, even Arcade Fire. I hope that they have a record like have it in them to make a record like this but this really reminded me of that feeling you got within that prince caspian and within really that overall summer 2015 tour for fish where it was like i knew that they had this in them again and they just went out and proved it to me so um we're gonna go ahead and listen to a bit of daydreaming right now off of radiohead's a moon-shaped pool i 
Okay. I uh, definitely agree with Brian that a moon-shaped pool kind of got me back on board with Radiohead. I wasn't a huge fan of the King of Limbs either, although uh, side B of that album is far superior to side A. But what I'm going to talk about right now is, if you know me, you know this is one of my favorite bands of all time, uh, one that I have seen double digits, not quite as much as Fish, but they also tune to tour a lot less. band I'm going to talk about now is Slater Kinney, and the song I'm going to feature eventually is called, called Surface Envy. So I would call Slater Kinney one of the great American rock bands. You got Corin Tucker, Carrie Brownstein, and Janet Weiss. They are three-headed sophisticated punk rock monster that play with more fury and righteous anger than just about any other band on the planet and they were initially they were active from 1995 that was uh, their first ep i think they put out um, a whole bunch of classic records they do not have any bad albums and then after the release of 2005's the woods which was essentially slater kinney electing to go huge psychedelic metal that's one of my favorite albums of the past 30 years they went on an extended hiatus they kind of just announced on their website one day in 2006 this next tour will be our last we don't have any plans in the future so come out and see us and enjoy it and remember that tour i saw at new york city's webster hall and they had the lights on the entire time because they were filming a dvd the release of which still has not seen the light of day and the air conditioner was broken so it was very very sweaty and very gross and the band seemed quite tentative i didn't enjoy the show that much and if you read Carrie Brownstein's uh, recent-ish memoir, she even touches on that show as being one of, she thought was one of like the worst Slater Kinney shows for all those reasons that I had mentioned. So when they weren't playing, I know uh, Corin Tucker, she put out two solo records with the Corin Tucker Band. Uh, there was the Carrie Brownstein, Janet Weiss side project, Wild Flag, with um, the guitarist Mary Timoney. Of course, Carrie Brownstein went on the fame lampooning Pacific Northwest hipsters at Fred Armisen in Portlandia. And all that stuff was basically Diet Coke compared to the real thing of Slater Kinney. So finally, they announced that they're coming back in 2014 with a brand new album called No Cities to Love. And it isn't just a fantastic comeback record, it was a fantastic Slater Kinney record. And with this album, they completely knocked it out of the park. And if you had, you know, a lot of bands, they don't really break up anymore. They go on these long hiatuses and then they get back together at Coachella. They rake in the festival money. That's not Slater Kinney. They put out a record that they were very proud of and they didn't play Coachella. They didn't play any British festivals. They put together a very reasonably sized tour of theaters for their fans. So really, they came back the right way, and people wanted to hear the new songs at these shows just because the songs in those cities to love were so goddamn good. And um, that's not something that happens very often, where the band will go on a hiatus and come back and not not miss a beat. You know, off the top of my head, that's what Mission to Burma did in 2002. Um, 
you know, I can't really think of too many others that come to mind. I know back in 2012, the Soundgarden comeback record, King Animal, was actually really good. But nobody did it like Slater Kinney did it with No Cities to Love in 2014. And the song we're going to play is Surface Envy, which I think was actually the second single. The first one they came back with was Bury Our Friends, which is very good, but I like Surface Envy a bit more. It's got this incredible descending stairway riff into very heavy Janet Weiss drumming. It's got Corin Tucker's shrieking. It just kind of represents everything I love about this band. And I'm going to play that for you right now. some Slater Kinney there. Dave, absolutely fantastic record surface and be definitely tells the story of that. Um, so to recap the songs that we played, so in our first section, we were talking about underwhelming bands, potentially underwhelming bands that demanded their our attention. We had the Nationals Little Faith, uh, as well as the Horrors Scarlet Fields. And then in our second segment, examining uh, music as victorious veteran athletes. We had Radiohead's Daydreaming and Slater Kinney's Surface Envy. So just a reminder, um, we're active on social media. If you want to hit us up on Twitter, we are at underscore beyond the pond, one word. We have a Medium page, medium.com slash beyond the pond. And we're on Spotify. There is a Beyond the Pond podcast song playlist that gets updated prior to every episode that we put out. So this is our 12th episode. So the playlist is getting rather robust. You can put it on and press shuffle and have your very own Beyond the Pond experience. And one thing I'll note just about social media, um, we've started doing... uh, Beyond the Pond live album tweet sessions where we will uh, live tweet out one of the albums that we are uh, featuring in our past episodes. Uh, um, Dave did uh, 
Screamadelica, is that what it was? Primal Scream the other day? Yep, Primal Scream. And I did uh, Tim Hecker's Virgins, two records that we featured in episode 11. And uh, would encourage you guys to follow along. Just gives us another way to engage with you guys and uh, talk a bit more about the music that we're featuring. We'll be doing that going forward here throughout our weeks. Um, But just a reminder of our publishing structure. So we try to get these out every other Tuesday. Tuesdays have absolutely no feel. Now that I am a working man once again, I can completely attest to that. Everybody needs to pick me up on Tuesdays. So um, Mm. get these out every other Tuesday. This is going live on... August 22nd. The next one's going to go live right after uh, Dick's. Um, and uh, then we'll have another one in mid-September that will focus on uh, whatever happened at Dick's. So we've got some great episodes coming up here this fall. Uh, going to start bringing on some guests, which we're really excited about. And uh, kind of um, uh, looking towards the latter half of 2017 with some huge records on the horizon. So definitely keep an eye out for... Um, what we'll be featuring here in the next few episodes. Yeah, we're definitely not going to slouch in the fall. No. Do not worry. And on that note, if you made it this far, thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you want to go into iTunes and give us a review, that's always welcome. I'd like to get some feedback there as well. Love it. And on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And join us again in two weeks, or we will go beyond the pond. Beyond the pond.